Welcome everyone. I'd like to begin my programs uh, the way my guru, Baba Muktananda, began his by saying in Hindi, Sabko Varisanmani Kesat Premse Ardik Swagat. With great love and respect, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would say that's the essence of spirituality, to welcome another person with love. So in that spirit, I want to welcome you. And I'm also welcoming you to my uh, endless series on the great beings. The great beings are my theme and my delight and my pleasure. The great beings are the people, men and women, who have attained the self, who've attained uh, God consciousness, who've realized the goal of yoga, and who've shared that realization with us. These are the great uh, hidden resource of humanity. And when I found out that such beings existed on the planet, even now, that's when I decided to go to India. Now, <clears throat> before I went to India, I actually made the acquaintance, not in physical form, because this gentleman has died some years before, but I'd been studying the works of this great teacher, one of the first ones that I was involved with, uh, and that's G.I. Gurdjieff, a great Western spiritual teacher. He's from Eastern Turkey, Armenian and Turkish roots. Uh, and then sometime in his youth, he went, he went to uh, the East and he studied in various uh, hidden monasteries, usually in the Sufi tradition. And he uh, cobbled together a teaching which is unique in my experience. Uh, he said that he got it from, uh, from these uh, hidden sources in the East. Uh, and yet, I don't think we found uh, many things like it there. So I don't know, either he was an inventive genius or he found some esoteric sources. One of the things he did was he brought back uh, what he called movements. Uh, we might call them dances. And through these dances, uh, he said he could teach people to balance their centers. He described human beings as three-centered beings, physical, uh, emotional, and intellectual. Uh, in Shaivai terms, it's Icha, Jnana, and Kriya. Uh, that's what we all are. We're thinking beings, we're feeling beings, and we're physical beings, moving beings. Uh, and he said all these, these centers are very important to all of us, but we're often out of balance. Some people are too intellectual, and they're out of touch with feeling. Others are too feeling and out of touch with the intellect. Others are just action-oriented, so they're not in touch with one of the other aspects. So spirituality, Gurdjieff would say, the first thing was to balance the three centers. And when you became balanced, then you could establish a base from which you could grow spiritually. And these, um, in the 20s, he brought a troop uh, of devotees to New York, and he did, uh, he exhibited these dances. Um, he demonstrated them at uh, Carnegie Hall and other places, and they caused a bit of a sensation in New York in the 20s. They hadn't seen anything like it. 
uh, probably the first uh, guru to hit uh, uh, the West in a long time, for a long time. Uh, but these dances, uh, I've found, as I, whenever I watch them, they're humorous, they're riveting, they're strangely charismatic, uh, and they're a joy to behold. So let's watch a couple of them. One of the things Gurdjieff said is that his famous aphorisms, not exactly the most uplifting, is that man is a machine, uh, which I think is unfortunately true, that we are mechanical. The way we respond is not freely, but the way we've been programmed. Our culture programs us and so on. And so we're a machine, and we don't actually have the ability to choose uh, until we develop ourselves spiritually. And so uh, in these dances, you're seeing uh, mechanical movements which show man is a machine, and then one guy is dancing around. He's a lunatic, and he's being lunatic, and you can see the interplay of these two forces. So let's take a look at them now. Wonderful, huh? <clears throat> Takes a lot of discipline to do those uh, those dances, I would reckon. Uh, so anyway, Gurdjieff uh, was born around 1872, and he died in uh, in eastern Turkey, and then he died in 1949 in the West. Uh, 
he, um, as I said, he traveled in Asia, and then he, around just before World War I, he started gathering students. And they went to many travails, and finally they got to France, where he began a, an ashram, or as he called it, the uh, Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man. Uh, <clears throat> main teachings, I would say, is that uh, what I said before about a human being is mechanical. Just as a garden that's untended gets filled with weeds, so since we haven't done any pruning, uh, we are covered with weeds, the weeds of wrong understanding, caring thoughts, negative thoughts, self-hatred, all kinds of things like that. Uh, and we, start, we have to start pruning before we can uh, plant anything that we want, we have to start clearing up the old. So he, he recommended a, a two-step program. One was self-observation, where you actually see what the condition is. Just as when you go into a garden, you have to look around and see what the situation so you know where to attack it. Uh, and then once you've seen it, then you can start to uh, move in the right direction, plant something good. And for that, he, he recommended self-remembering, which was to remember the I, remember the I, very much like Nisargadatta's I, I am. Uh, Ramana's I, I, I. Baba's meditate on the self. And he said that when you did that, uh, a certain energy, a certain shakti takes place which causes inner growth. So this was his teaching. He called it his path, the fourth way. Um, I mentioned the three centers. So the normal spiritual paths were of one center. So the, the, the center, the navel center, the center of the body, he called the way of the fakir. That means a physical yogi. And even to this day, there are fakirs in India who do very strange practices, standing up for 12 years and uh, all kinds of things like that. Um, and these are fakirs. You know, the, the, the uh, Ripley's, believe it or not, business of a, of a guy lying on a bed of nails uh, or climbing a rope and, you know, all those things. These are fakirs. Then there's the way of the monk, which is the way of the emotional center. Um, he called it the way of the monk. He meant like devotional Christian monks. It's the way of devotion, love for God in whatever form you pick. And finally, there was the way of the yogi, by which he meant the way of the yani, the way of the intellect, uh, the, the intellectual center. But um, he called his way the fourth way, which involved ba uh, balancing all the three centers and also a certain kind of slyness. He called it the way of the sly man because um, he wanted it to be invisible. He didn't want you to to uh, do anything out, outwardly visible, didn't want you to wear a special uniform, but you could just be practicing while you're doing your mundane uh, life. But inside you're awake, alive, on fire with transformation and so on. But no one knew that from outside, so it's the way 
of the sly man. <clears throat> so these are, uh, uh, and also he had uh, a lot of impact, and a lot of the intellectuals uh, of the time were attracted to him. Um, one of them was somebody that I identify with. We have a picture of Orage. Did we get a picture? No, we didn't. Okay, so we have a picture of Nat. Okay, this is not Satguru Nat. This is C.S. Nat, and he was uh, uh, an editor. He edited uh, different things, and he came across the teaching through one his first teacher, who was uh, uh, Oraj. Oraj was a literary man. I forgot to get a picture of Oraj. He was. Uh, very prominent literary man in England uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, he was the editor of uh, uh, a prominent literary magazine. He knew uh, all the, the, the literary greats, T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, and uh, all of them. Uh, and then suddenly, at the height of that, he left and became a devotee of Gurdjieff. He left his literary career and uh, Gurdjieff sent him to America to run groups and uh, teach Gurdjieff's path. So this is from a book by C.S. Nott, who was a later uh, follower of Oraj and later of Gurdjieff, uh, and he's talking to Oraj here from the 20s. C.S. Nott says, I asked Oraj about the purpose of Gurdjieff's visit to America. So this is in the 20s when he came and did those demonstrations. He said, the demonstrations, the meetings and talks are a kind of net thrown out. Out of the hundreds of people who see and hear only a few in a state of dissatisfaction with themselves, with life, will feel that, that we have something they're looking for. So this is uh, in uh, classical Indian thought, this is Mumakshutva. Uh, someone who has a desire for liberation. You can't manufacture that. That's something that you discover. And when that comes up, then nothing but spirituality, true spirituality, authentic spirituality will satisfy you. But if that feeling doesn't arise, then it's not for you. Now, I, I believe that that will arise in the case of everyone eventually. However, it may not even be in this lifetime. Some people will be lost in the mundane world and so on. And even once you've got a taste of it, it's very easy to be uh, swayed by mundane issues and so on. <clears throat> he goes on, Orage says, it does not necessarily mean that these few will be unhappy people. They may be leading an active life, be well off and comfortably situated but they will feel that there is something else besides the round of ordinary existence. And that's certainly what happened to me. I had all the things going for me in my life, and yet there was an essential emptiness, a meaninglessness in it. In other words, he says, there are certain people who possess a magnetic center or the beginnings of one. These are people who have the possibility of working on themselves. The rest of humanity, not feeling the need, will do nothing. So magnetic center would be 
that, that center of inner growth, that inner growth. We're in fact, or Arjuna says, we're in fact offering people an opportunity of having a purpose in life, of using their suffering, the dissatisfactions they feel for their own good. How many will take it? We shall see. Casting the, the bread on the water, casting the seeds. You throw the seed into the earth, how many sprout? The majority probably don't, but some do. <clears throat> Not ask them, were you in a state of dissatisfaction with yourself and life when you met Gurdjieff? Oraj, indeed I was. I was already beginning to be disillusioned with the purely literary and cultural life when I met Uspensky, who came to see me before 1914. Uspensky was one of Gurdjieff's major disciples, and so he first met Orage. The reason I identify with it is because I also, many years later, became dissatisfied with uh, literary life. Um, he says, it was becoming more and more difficult for me to force myself to write the notes of the week in the New Age. New Age is the name of his, interesting, isn't it? Name. Interesting, the magazine was called The New Age. <clears throat> I think uh, there was, it was um, a time of uh, great uh, literary excitement uh, in those days in the, in the 20s. Uh, and they said, like, a new age is dawning. Um, but it wasn't enough for Orage. It had been, he says, it had been a profound disappointment to me to realize that my intellectual life, which was associated, uh, which was associated all that was highest and best in Western culture, was leading nowhere. As they used to say, I had not found God. So he left. <clears throat> So here's another one from another of his uh, disciples, Ospensky, who did more to popularize Gurdjieff's teachings than anybody. Did we, did we get a picture of Ospensky? Solid vital or peculiar. <laughs> Ospensky was one of the most solid human beings ever. But well, we owe him a, a, always a debt of gratitude because he faithfully recorded Gurdjieff's teachings. So Gurdjieff himself could not write in any kind of lucid manner, uh, but Ospensky did, and so because of that, we have a good record of it. Question. I find that much of my time is passed in a negative state, and I don't seem to be able to do anything about it. That's a, a question that many of us can relate to. Uh, Ospensky says, when you find different manifestations of this negative state, you can struggle with it because this struggle is in the mind. You can refuse some points of view and accept other points of view, and very soon you'll see a difference. So he's saying, first of all, you should struggle with your negative state. Don't think I'm cursed or I can't get out of this, but actually go to war with it. And Especially if you come in touch with a great being, a great teacher, you'll have tools to do it. He says, this is connected with a very big question because from one point of view, we are so mechanical that we can do nothing. 
But from another per point of view, there are several things which we can begin to do. So even though we can't do some things, we can do. So it's important not to try to do that which we can't do. And on the other hand, it's very important to do what can be done and should be done. <clears throat> we have certain possibilities in us, only we do not use them. It's true that we cannot do anything in the sense that we cannot change what we feel at any given moment. So feeling, you can't change. When you feel bad and so on, it's very hard to change. But we can make ourselves think about a subject uh, in a given moment. So he's making the point that you can change your thought, but you can't, changing a feeling is very difficult to do directly, but you can change your thought. And since thought and feeling are intricately related, by changing your thought, moving your thought in a proper direction, a positive direction, a nurturing and healthy direction, eventually feeling, feeling will follow. <clears throat> he says, we must know what is possible and begin from that. Because when the possibility to do something, because then the possibility to do something, instead of letting things happen, will gradually increase. Reminds me of uh, uh, what the Stoics say, that you should uh, do what's possible, not do what's impossible. But also you should make sure that you take the advantage of opportunities that you have. He goes on, we do not realize that enormous power lies in thinking. The power lies in the fact that if we always think rightly about certain things, we can make it permanent. It grows to a permanent attitude. You may find some inclination to wrong emotional manifestations of some kind. Just at that moment, you can do nothing. You've, you've educated yourself in this capacity for this kind of reaction by wrong thinking. So when we first get to the guru, for example, when I got to Baba, I would understand that anger was to be avoided and depression was to be avoided. These things were to be avoided. And then I would find myself in them and I would remember the teaching and I couldn't do anything to lift the mood, but I understood that they were wrong from the teaching and I tried to align myself with the teaching. And as I worked on that, after a while, it became possible to shift the feeling into a uplifted and happy and peaceful feeling. And if you start from right thinking, which is the, the teaching of the sages, of the guru, of the scriptures, is the right way to go. I, I think I am a horrible loser, but the Upanishads say I am Brahman. Well, the, the Upanishads are right, so I have to continue to remember that, even though my inner being is very depressed and saying I'm a loser. I have to keep moving in the right direction. So if you start right thinking, then after some time, you'll educate in yourself the capacity for a different reaction. This method has to be understood, as this understanding must be quite deep. By creating right attitudes, you consolidate the fact that you have really and seriously decided not to give way to negative 
manifestations. We do not realize how much we lose in this way. We lose exactly what we want to get. When we give way to negative thinking, self-hatred, and so on, we suck the life force out of us. And so we have to fight against that tendency. And that tendency, everybody has some version of that tendency. Okay, let's see. I have one very charming personal one at the end. Uh, now, I've got two. Which should we do? A note on uh, positive ideas or... Yeah, I think we'll do this and we'll keep the next one for next time and then I'll finish with that. Okay. <clears throat> uh, personality and essence. Gurdjieff had wonderful ideas, spiritual ideas that are worthwhile. One of them was the difference between personality and essence. Uh, so personality, roughly speaking, is the mind. Uh, you, we've been educated. Our personality has been caused, formed by our upbringing, by our education, and so on. And it's intellectual. Uh, then there's essence. Essence is deeper down. It's more emotional. And it's who we really are. You can say that the essence is close to the self. And personality is who we think we are. Sometimes the more educated we are, the more we are in personality. And um, sometimes simple people, you know, who uh, work with the earth, they're more in essence. Not always, but sometimes. Uh, <clears throat> And the idea is that we have to shift from personality active and essence passive. There are people, especially I knew in the academic line, people who were incredibly educated, incredibly intelligent, culturally educated, uh, but they had no essence. They were out of touch with their essence. It was all personality. Um, so they had personality active, essence passive essence invisible. Uh, and to, we have to shift to essence active and personality passive. Uh, so that we, we are living from our essence. Personality is, takes a back seat. Doesn't mean you don't have a personality. Um, sometimes we think that a, a spiritual person has to be always like this and so on, but you know, you can have a personality, but the essence should be front and center. And then he says, we can do, we start to do, when essence is the, the, the comes forward. So here's uh, a little bit by another one of Gurdjieff's disciples, Morris Nichol. We have a picture of Nichol, he's the, uh, mild-mannered English psychiatrist uh, who studied with Jung. Very uh, intelligent guy who had a very good grasp of Gurdjieff's teachings. And he had a group in England and he, used to, he taught for many years there. Uh, and he's talking here about positive ideas. Okay. He says, a positive idea is an idea that lessens personality and increases essence. 
It was said last time that the idea that man can do is not a positive idea. Although most people would say it was. But the idea that man can do increases personality. It is exactly what personality thinks. The work says man cannot do. And this is a positive idea. Why? Because it lessens personality. Whereas the idea that man can do increases personality and therefore is a negative idea. Now I have a Himalaya of explaining to do. <laughs> He's saying that um, the, the idea man can do increases ego. And if we pump ourselves up with ego, we come very far away from our essence. Uh, and he says when we say man cannot do, he means man cannot do out of his own cleverness, but only if he touches the self, the essence, then he can do. I mean, something like that. So he's making the distinction about where we live in personality or essence. Each of us will have our own notion about it. <clears throat> he says, personality has no life in itself. Only what life itself can do. For example, we have no ideas of our own. These are, if we live from personality. Our personality is simply a product of our conditioning. We cannot think a new thought. You know, it's, it's, a culture is remarkably powerful. People are so swept along by cultural trends and memes that go around and what their group and their peers think, and they take on whatever thoughts uh, the culture has. And then we react to thoughts that a culture 50, 100 years had, and we act viciously and say, they should be thinking like us. Well, what you're thinking is a lot of crap anyway, and in 100 years, they'll look back and say, those people thought idiotic thoughts. It's because they're not thinking from themselves, they're just influenced by cultural factors. It's not till you can think from the self, from deep within, that you have your own thoughts. He says, we cannot think a new thought. <clears throat> we can only copy, compare, alter. A personality which is dead surrounds essence which is alive. The real life in us is our essence. That's why when people came to Baba, they felt alive. They could feel the Shakti. That Shakti was essence. They would have a new life. The tired old, Oraj was tired of the intellectual world that he lived in. It was glittering. It, was, it had a lot of prestige. It had a lot of fame, a lot of glitter. He met celebrities. But there was something hollow about it. <clears throat> he says, so personality which is dead surrounds essence which is alive but inarticulate and undeveloped. When you meet the guru, something new develops in you, something essential, and it's transforming. Uh, it hasn't been developed, and then it gets developed. He says, a man with developed essence, a man who has undergone this reversal from personality active and essence passive to personality passive and essence active, such a man belongs to conscious humanity, and such a man can do. <laughs> so 
Another of his charming ideas was there was a conscious circle of humanity. That means those people who are practicing the inner yoga, who are growing spiritually. And it's a, it's a, it's a relatively small group at any particular time. Hopefully it's growing. Um, and they don't all adapt to the same path, but they can recognize each other. Uh, and then they be become able to, uh, to actually change their emotions, too, and do other things like that. He says, he is reborn. Such a man has real choice, for choice belongs to essence, while mechanical law belongs to personality. <clears throat> An ordinary person is under the law of accident. He does not have choice. The law of accident means stuff happens to him. He doesn't choose. He goes on, now you can see that it is positive to become aware of our own mechanicalness. A machine does not do. It has no choice. This is one of the definite, one of the definite increases of consciousness possible for us and expected after a certain time. To actually make choices in our inner world, to choose to think thoughts that put us into a good mood, this is a great doing that when we first come to the work we're not capable of, getting ourselves out of a bad mood, getting ourselves out of a tantrum, very almost impossible to do. And somebody who can do that, uh, they've done a great thing. He goes on, this work is about increasing consciousness in many definite directions. Consciousness is light, not physical light, but psychological light, which gives a new power of seeing everything. As man is, he is in darkness, quite literally. He is in psychological darkness. He is not conscious. General humanity is in the dark in this sense. To realize, to begin to realize that one is mechanical and not really alive is a shock. I think people who walk the spiritual path uh, get this shock, you know, that Somehow, whatever I was doing was kind of mechanical. He says, this is called the first conscious shock. After the shock, the first task is to form an observing eye. Only through the observing eye formed by this work and its positive ideas can a person observe himself deeply enough to realize his mechanicalness as a psychological effect. So the first thing you should do is not try to change anything but simply observe how you are. Observe how you are. Now in an ashram, that self-observation happens against the background of the daily routine because the routine is there every day. It's always there at the same time every day and there you are having a little freak outs like the, the dancing lunatic in the dance. <laughs> you know, you're, the, the routine's going bing, 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 bing. And you're going, you know, yesterday at RT I was having a tantrum. The next day at Guru Gita I was freaking out. And then you can see all that against this, uh, this background. And you start to observe yourself. You see it. Say, like, God, look at that. That's unnecessary, but can't do much about it. But I observe myself doing that. And then I practice. I practice my daily meditation. Practice my mantra repetition. I practice my chanting practice my guru seva in the ashram, 
And without even knowing what's happening, a growth starts to take place. And then gradually you make little triumphs, little victories over these tendencies. And you say, oh, I caught myself in the middle of anger. I didn't just give in to it. And I was able to achieve something like that. And that's a great triumph. He says, <clears throat> he then sees that the whole matter and meaning of life lies in himself and his relation to himself. <clears throat> Hitherto he's been identified with what is not him, with personality. Now he begins to awaken from sleep, from, person, from personality active. So the realization that he is a machine and that he cannot do has a positive result, though it seems like a negative idea. It brings him a step towards that reversal, that interchange of signs between personality and essence. For we have tentatively defined the positive idea as that which lessens personality and increases essence. Now, Aurobindo used to call this the awakening of the psychic being, uh, the psychic transformation. Ramdas, my first teacher in this field, I used to say that there's a shift from ground to figure, which is from art, you know, that the foreground becomes the background, the background becomes the foreground. That's like moving from personality to essence. There's like a very subtle but profound shift. Uh, the self comes forward and the self becomes the priority. It means that, that instead of external factors running you, what you get, what you want, what people say, inner ones, what we call the upward shift, you run according to that. You get the, the testimony of the self. When we first begin, we'll sell ourselves out. We, we don't listen to the self, we just listen to the glittering uh, externals, what somebody believes, what somebody, we want to please this person, we want to get some praise from that person. Uh, but later on we start to hear what the inner self is actually telling us. And we realize to go with that is the best thing we can, we can do. So I'm going to skip this delicious one on internal and external considering and we can do it next time. Um, and I'm going to do one from uh, our old favorite, Fritz Peters. Got a picture of Fritz? This is him as a boy. It's about him at uh, the time of this story. Fritz Peters uh, became a writer um, and went through circumstances in his personal life. Uh, he was dumped in, Gurdj in the middle of Gurdjieff's uh, ashram in Paris when he was about 12, 11 or 12. Uh, <clears throat> and many years later, he wrote a memoir, which is among the most charming spiritual memoirs I've ever read. Uh, and his relationship with Gurdjieff, uh, I mean, he's a little kid who doesn't know anything. Gurdjieff teaches him and he learns things. It's just marvelous. Um, so this is one of the uh, uh, events that Fritz talks about. He was an American, and uh, he was under the uh, guardianship 
of two women, Jane Heap and uh, what's it, Anderson? What's the other one? Margaret Anderson. Margaret Anderson. They ran a magazine, a literary magazine in, in America. But anyway, they sort of dumped him on uh, Gurdjieff. That's what happened. They're devotees of Gurdjieff. <clears throat> so there's a, here's one of Fritz's stories. And the background is that Gurdjieff's wife, Madame Ostrovsky, was terminally ill, and Gurdjieff spent hours every day with her. That comes in a little later. <clears throat> uh, Fritz writes, in addition to the chickens, the donkey, the horse, a number of sheep, and for a time one cow, there were a number of cats and dogs around the prairie. This is Gurdjieff's uh, place uh, in Paris, in Fontainebleau. Um, and um, they had animals, all kinds of things. So Fritz, the little kid, was in charge of the animals. One of the dogs, a rather ugly black and white mongrel, uh, had always tended to follow Gurdjieff around, but not to such an extent that he could have been called Gurdjieff's dog. At this period, with Gurdjieff rarely absent from the Prairie, he had cut his trips to Paris to an absolute minimum. He used to go to Paris regularly and uh, I guess hold court there, have devotees there. Uh, this dog, named Philos by Gurdjieff, became his constant companion. He not only followed him everywhere, but also slept in Gurdjieff's room, unless Gurdjieff uh, put him out personally, which he usually did, telling me that he didn't like, like anyone or anything sleeping in the same room with him. Upon being put out of the room, Philos would curl up directly in front of the door and then go to sleep against it. So he's right out in the hallway guarding Gurdjieff. <clears throat> Would that be called philos, you think? Huh? I just had that philos, philos. Yes, we need to ask somebody who knows Greek. <clears throat> uh, he was a reasonably fierce watchdog, and he became very protective of Gurdjieff. He was, however, extremely tolerant of me, as I was, obviously, with Gurdjieff's permission, constantly coming and going to and from Gurdjieff's room. When I would enter it late at night with my tray of coffee, Gurdjieff had coffee at all hours, um, he would glare up at me, yawn, and permit me to step over him and enter the room. One night, it was very late, and the entire priore was silent and dark, with the exception of Gurdjieff's room. Gurdjieff set aside his work when I came in, and told me to sit on the bed beside him. <clears throat> philos, not Philos. Would it be Philos? Philos? Philosophy? <clears throat> so anyway, sit beside him. He talked at some length about his work, how hard his writing was, how exhausting his daily work with Madame Ostrowski and then, as usual, asked me about myself. I recapitulated the various things I was doing, and he commented that since I had a great deal to do with animals, I took care of the chickens, the horse, the donkey, and recently been feeling, feeding feroz, too. <laughs> he, 
he would like to know what I thought of them. I said I thought of them all as my friends and told him to his amusement that I even had names for all the chickens. <laughs> this is interesting now. He said that the chickens were not important. Very stupid creatures. <laughs> but that he hoped that I would take good care of the other animals. The donkey did not matter too much, but it was concerned with the horse and the dogs. Horse and dog, and sometimes also true of cow, he said, are special animals. Can do many things with such animals. In America, in Western world, people make fools of dogs, make him learn tricks, other stupid things. But these animals truly special, no longer just animals. He then asked me if I'd ever heard of reincarnation. And I said that I had. He said that there are many people, some Buddhists, for example, who had many theories about reincarnation. Some even believe animal can become man, or sometimes that man in next reincarnation can become animal. He laughed when he said this, and then added, man do many strange things with religion when we learn a little, make up new things for religion, sometimes things that have little truth, but usually come from wrong thing that was true. In case of dogs, they're not all wrong, he said. Animals have only two centers. Man is three-centered being, with body, heart, and mind, all different. So there's the, the solid, vital, and peculiar, the, the uh, moving center, the emotional center, and the intellectual center. But animals only have two centers. Which two? They're missing the intellect. Yeah. <clears throat> but just because of this, because of this impossibility to acquire a third brain, is necessary to always treat animals with kindness. You know this word, kindness? I said I did, and he said, never forget this word. Very good word. and does not exist in many languages. Not in French, for instance. French say gentil, but this means not same thing. Not kind. Kind from, comes from kin, like family, like same thing. Kindness means to treat like self. Beautiful, isn't it? Teaching a 12-year-old kid this. this you listen to kindness, be kind. Reason for necessity treat dogs and horses with kindness, he went on, is because unlike other animal, in his heart, all dog and horse who associate with man wish become man. You look at dog or horse and you always see in eyes this sadness because no, not possible for them, but even so they wish. <laughs> sad, isn't it? This very sad thing to wish for impossible. They wish this because of man. Man corrupts such animals. Man almost tried to make dogs and horse human. You've heard people say, my dog most like human? They not know they speak near truth when they say this because it is almost truth but still impossible. Dog and horse seem like human because have this wish. So 
Fritz, he always pronounced my name this way, he says, Fritz, Fritz, you remember this important thing, take good care of animals, always be kind. He paused, then he said, maybe a true and next life can become human. He then spoke about Madame Mostrovsky. He said his work with her was extremely tiring and very difficult because I tried to do things with her which almost not possible. <clears throat> if she alone, already she'd be a long time dead. I keep alive, make stay alive with my strength. Very difficult thing, but also very important. The most important moment in life for her. She lived many lives as very old soul. She now have possibility ascend to other world. But sickness come and make more difficult make impossible for her to do this thing alone. If can keep alive a few months more, we'll not have to come back and live this life again. So he does believe in reincarnation very clearly, doesn't he? You're now part of prayer a family, my family. You can help by making strong wish for her. Not for long life, but for proper death at right time. Wish can help is like prayer when for other. Then, for, when for itself, prayer and wish, no good. But when wish with heart for other can help. When he had finished, he looked at me for a long time, patted my head in that affectionate animal way, and sent me to bed. How's that? Great story. All right, let's meditate. It's a very magical book this uh, Fritz's account, isn't it? Beautiful. So let's meditate for 10 minutes. Now let's meditate on kindness. No, you don't have to meditate on anything. Whatever you want. As the Vigyan uh, Bhairava says, meditate on whatever pleases you. <laughs> 